WBSM presents Spooky South Coast with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. And we are going to be talking with you about the paranormal, as we do each and every Saturday night, except last Saturday night when we weren't here uh, because of the Red Sox. We took the night off. You know, we had to kind of get ready, get amped up for the Halloween season. Matt Costa, what would you do with your night off? Um, I took a nap and then watched a movie. What movie did you watch? Um, actually, I watched, <coughs> I watched a couple. I watched uh, anything. Anything you want to share? I mean, was it Twilight? Is that why you're being? Um, no, I've seen that already. That's okay. Please, if you see that now, that's you're like off. you're out of the loop. Yeah, it, it's. It, I still haven't seen it, and I, I freely admit that I still haven't seen it. But uh, when I do say that, teenage girls oh. look at me funny. How could you have not seen that? Actually, I saw Where the Wild Things Are, and I took a nap in the middle of the movie because well, it was boring. There you go. I have it sitting in my <laughs> DVR to watch with my son, so glad to know that uh, it'll be <laughs> fascinating to watch. Spike Jones, what'd you do? <laughs> well, <clears throat> we are going to be talking tonight with our guest, uh, Ursula Bielski, in just a few minutes. We're going to have to take a break for the news, so we just wanted to come on the air and let everybody know that there was a show happening tonight. And, of course, you can watch the video stream at Fate Radio's website. Just go to fatemag.com slash fateradio, or even better, you can go to spookysouthcoast.com and click on the link right at the top. And uh, always you want to go to spookysouthcoast.com anyway because there's always great articles up there, reviews, uh, all evidence of the odd, all kinds of things to check out every week. Sooner or later, Moniz is actually going to answer the, the Ask Moniz question. I already gave the answer. Whether they put it up or not is not up to me. Oh, hell yeah, listening. So, uh, but uh, we do have uh, we do have a new announcement up there on SpookySouthCoast.com as well, and we're going to tease it a little bit here, and then we'll talk about it later on in the second hour as well. But we have Paranite 2010. Sorry, guys, it's the best name I could come up with. Paranite 2010 coming up on October 20th at the Water Street Cafe in Fall River, Massachusetts. And what a night this is going to be. You're going to have Jeff Belanger, who is always a fascinating lecturer, and he's entertaining, he's funny, he's great. Uh, he's going to be presenting his lecture on legend tripping. Uh, we're also going to have Robert Murch there with his Ouija boards, and uh, he's going to give a little presentation on the history of talking boards, and uh, I'm going to get up and do a little something as well. And also, we're going to have your chance to check out the Water Street Cafe. It is a very haunted spot. We've uh, been there a couple of times in the last few weeks and, and checked out some of the activity going on there. I had an experience there that I'll share with you later on in the program. And uh, we're also going to have some psychics on hand. They'll be doing readings, and uh, we'll have maybe a seance trying to contact some of these spirits that are in the Water Street Cafe. And also, this is this is really huge because it's great to have the chance to go out and investigate and, and to uh, see lectures. And there's a dinner included with this. So, you know, you get everything you need for an evening all there at once. But we also have a very limited number of VIP packages available that also get you a room at the Lizzie Board and Bed and Breakfast. So you can't go wrong with that. Tickets for this thing are only going to be $45 for the general admission tickets to the Water Street Cafe event. And then you can get the packages, uh, the Lizzie Boyden packages, start at just $265 for a third-floor room, uh, and that gets you the room and two tickets to the event, and uh, $315 for second-floor rooms, and that will be subject to availability. So we'll talk more about it coming up on hour number two. Also, Ursula Bielski talking with us about children and the paranormal, and this might be an interesting debate, so you're going to want to stay tuned and stay by the phone because you might have your own thoughts and feelings about whether or not we should tell kids that ghosts are real. We'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. 
right, welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. Coming up later on in the show, we'll have all the information about Spooky South Coast's Paranite 2010, Wednesday, October 20th at the Water Street Cafe in Fall River. And you can go to SpookySouthCoast.com and click on the banner right there to find out more during the program. But you're going to want to stay by the radio or the computer, however you watch, listen, experience what it is to be on Spooky South Coast, because we have joining us Ursula Bielski. Uh, she's the founder of Chicago Hauntings Incorporated. She's a historian, author, and parapsychology enthusiast. She's been writing and lecturing about Chicago supernatural folklore and the paranormal for nearly 20 years. She's recognized as a leading authority on the Chicago region's ghost lore and cemetery history. She is the author of six popular and critically acclaimed books on the same subjects, which have sold in excess of 100,000 copies. Ursula has also been featured in numerous television documentaries, including productions by the A&E Network, the History Channel, the Learning Channel, the Travel Channel, and PBS. And she's joining us tonight to talk about her new book, which we're going to have Matt Costa hold up in front of the camera. It's called There's Something Under the Bed, and it is a great book. I've finished it uh, recently, and it brought up a lot of questions that I've kind of had to focus on myself, raising a now six-year-old, and how do you deal with explaining the paranormal to children uh, and it's different for people like myself and, and ursula and others who are uh, paranormal investigators and also have kids ursula how many children do you have let's put her on the air there you go i know there you go i'm sorry how many children do you have ursula i have two daughters they're eight and eleven so you've already had to have the the it's funny because we save the talk like you know, like you have to have this the sex ed talk with them, but you kind of have to have the paranormal talk with them. And so I'm, I'm assuming by now it's already come up in your household about whether or not ghosts are real. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's you know a subject that goes around our house a lot, as I'm sure it does yours. You know, doing what I do, and so you know they've they've both always been familiar with you know ghost hunting and different issues in the paranormal and what are ghosts and. What are demons and all sorts of things like that that, you know, a long time ago, you know, when, when we were growing up, these were not things that really people talked about, you know. And today it's a lot different. There's a, a much different climate now, you know, thanks uh, in large part to all of the TV shows that are out there and all the books that are out there now. Um, it's kind of a, you know, a cool subject and and something that's acceptable to talk about and to to believe in, even for kids. But kids are in a different place because they are, you know, not like adults that are just into this stuff and think it's fun and think it's cool and interesting. I mean, they're really growing and they're forming the way they think about a lot of different things. And the paranormal gets into some big issues, you know, what's real and what's not. Um, you know, religious issues, um, you know, which is something Jeff Belanger wrote the um, foreword for the book, great foreword, and uh, he talks about that a lot, how, you know, the issue of religion comes into all of this, too, and that's something that you have to address with your kids uh, from a very early age, especially if they're having their own experiences with these things. Well, it, it's funny because, you know, we, we always say that we want to protect our children, and then the question is whether or not we're protecting them from the fear of the unknown by telling them that these things aren't real, or if we're protecting them from being able to develop these abilities uh, by shutting it down. It's it's such a slippery slope of, you know, what you want to encourage and what you don't and what you're willing to acknowledge and what you're not. It, it's kind of funny, though. You know, we'll tell a kid a ghost isn't real, but then we tell them to wait for Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy to come. Yeah, and I read about that a little bit in the the beginning of the book, is that we really do send these mixed messages from the time our children are very young. And we want them to incorporate these fanciful ideas and characters into their lives, Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy and the Easter Bunny and all of these things, um, you know, and angels, of course. And uh, so, you know, we... we talk to them about these things and we encourage them to believe in these things um, which, you know, are on the side of not being real in our minds, you know, so deliberately instill things in them that, you know, we pretty much know aren't real. And then, you know, on the other side of our mouth, we tell them there's nothing in the closet, there's nothing under the bed, go to sleep, There, you know, there's no such thing as ghosts. 
there's no such thing as witches, and you know, on and on and on. So we are sending them a very mixed message and, you know, creating a lot of instability and uncertainty in them uh, about what they're supposed to believe in and what's supposed to be real and what they're supposed to talk about. And so, you know, as they get older, they continue to watch us and to listen to us to validate what it's okay for them to experience and what it's okay for them to believe. And we think that that's a big part of why, as children get older, they start to have fewer experiences with the paranormal and fewer abilities um, in the paranormal, you know, as far as ESP and things like that go, um, that they may have more of when they're, they're small children because they really do watch us and they watch uh, for what, what they want. They want us to approve of them and they want, don't want to uh, do anything or say anything or, or, or upset us uh, in any way with things that we don't think are acceptable. Well, even if we try to skirt the issue for as long as we can, which I think most of us that are involved in the paranormal world probably try to do, uh, it eventually it just happens on its own. I mean, when my son was two, he was talking to things that we couldn't see in the room and, you know, would ask, who are you talking to? And he'd give the name of a loved one who'd passed away. And that's a common occurrence. It happens all the time. And, you know, we see these imaginary friends that kids will develop. Uh, you know, I, I remember when I was younger, I had an imaginary friend that I could have sworn even today was real. That's so true. And this is one of the, the central things that has come up again and again. Well, first of all, you said just the, the, the idea that children at a very young age seem to be aware of or even converse with um you know, entities uh, in the room that we can't see and that they will actually call them by, you know, they'll call grandma or grandpa, you know, that's passed away or uncle so-and-so or aunt so-and-so, loved one that's gone. And, uh, you know, it's it's very, very interesting. When my uh, older daughter was born, my husband was a firefighter and he was gone for 24 hours every third day. And we had bought a house, you know, kind of out in the middle of nowhere. So I was all alone with a newborn baby. And every single night that he was gone, I would wake up in the middle of the night. The baby was in the crib in our room. And the smell of cigarette smoke would be filling the room. And I would look and look around. Neither of us smoked. No one that came to our house smoked. It was so disturbing. And I would go and look for the, the source of the smoke. And it was strongest around her crib. And this went on for a couple of months, only on the nights when my husband was gone. And I finally told him about it, and I was so upset about it. And he laughed, and he was absolutely convinced that it was his mother, who had died several years before we met, who apparently always had a cigarette in her hand. And he really believed that she was around when he was at work because she knew that I was uncomfortable, that I was scared and nervous about the newborn baby and being home alone by myself. And he really came to believe that she was sort of, you know, helping me out when he wasn't there. I, of course, hated her immediately because I felt she didn't trust me to take care of the baby when he was at work. But these are very, you know, very common occurrences. And I've heard numerous stories from people who would say that, and it's it's never a matter of the child... uh, sees a loved one that they may have known either. It's always one that had passed away before they were born. So, you know, you wonder how they can know this person, how they can describe this person, and yet they just seem to have that connection. That's so true. uh, There was a similar incident that happened with, uh, again, my older daughter. You know, not long after she was born, she was probably about, I don't know, know, six months old or whatever, just starting to say a few words. And uh, we had gone to visit my mom about a half hour away, and we are driving home, and she fell asleep in the car, and I had some errands to do. So I thought I'd drive around a bit and uh, then stop for the errands, let her sleep for a few more minutes. So I went to the cemetery where my dad is buried. He died 25 years ago. And uh, we drove through the cemetery gates. I'd never been there before. And um, she opened up her eyes, and she said, Grandpa. And I was like, what? <laughs> and, uh, you know, the more over the years that I've talked to people about these experiences, I've found how common they are, that they really seem to be aware of people and recognize people that we don't see, or they'll um, see pictures, photographs of them, and and recognize them and call them by name, even though they never met them and, and never saw the photos before. 
I mean, there's so many uh, good things that can happen uh, at that age with having the the child make that connection with with someone who's no longer with us. That you get that extra feeling of protection. They they feel loved. Uh, you, you know, it seems like there's always somebody watching out for them. Um, that almost like it's wrong of us to eventually try to take that away from them when we tell them, oh, there's no such thing as ghosts. You know, because they might not look at the spirit of a deceased grandparent or something as being a quote-unquote ghost when they're that age. They just see it as another loving presence, no different than their mother or their father. And so to say to them, you know, there's no such thing, and to start wiping away that and create doubt of what they're encountering, we're almost robbing them of the ability to, to be with somebody like that. Absolutely, and I think that's something that we automatically do. I mean, it's maybe, you know, maybe we're the last generation to, you know, automatically feel the responsibility for telling children that there's no such thing as ghosts, that feeling that that's something that's going to frighten them. And, uh, you know, I think these whole new generations of kids um, have a very broad acceptance of a lot of things that that our generation and the generations before us did not. And they have, um, you know, I, I write a bit in the book about indigo children and, and mm-hmm. crystal children, rainbow children, and, you know, it's very, all that stuff is very iffy and it sounds very new agey and, and like, people are making excuses for their children's behavior and things like that. Once you, when you think about it, that, you know, when you think about the, the newer generations of children and just how much wiser they seem to be and how much more mature they seem to be and how much more understanding they seem to have about all sorts of things. I know my 11-year-old seems just like this wise old soul. And, uh, you know, I think they, that we have to give them a lot more credit than we do. Um, that they are able to accept a lot more things than we give them credit for, and that's just automatically think they're going to be afraid of things. But there does seem to be that that border, Um, and this was brought up by somebody in the chat room. There there is a point where eventually uh, it's not the benign presence that they they feel anymore, Uh, whether it's their own development as human beings, but eventually they become afraid because they don't understand. Do you think that that fear that kicks in is due to us telling them that it's not real, that telling them that it's not there creates that fear? Or do you think it's just naturally, as you eventually become more aware of the natural world, that you would be afraid of something like that? I think probably it's some of both. And, uh, you know, I think some of it is from the, the experiences that children actually have. I mean, I think as... Um, you know, I think as they get older, especially, that there's a lot of energy that they have. And, you know, it's all, this is, ever, you know, all of this stuff is just theoretical, so difficult, you know, because we don't know anything about it. But, um, you know, there's so many theories out there that there really are these, you know, negative energies, negative entities that actually, you know, prey on children's energy, especially, you know, as they get older, adolescents that have a lot of energy and and uh, have a lot of, um, you know, interest and exploration. And, uh, you know, I think there, I think some of that fear does come from a growing awareness of things that we do see, you know, just awareness of, of the bad in the world that we do see, and an awareness, too, of other things that are out there, um, you know, whatever you want to call them, and that it's just um, growing in an awareness of that. And, um, and again, you know, children do experience things, you know, the name of the book is There's Something Under the Bed, and, you know, parts of the book do talk about that, that there are there do there does seem to be something there in the dark that it's not all just fear of the dark, fear of what's not there, but fear of something that is there, and whether it's just some you know negativity of the universe or if it's negative spirits or demons um, of of whatever variety, um, I think a lot of it is children just growing up and growing into an awareness of um, of what of what's there and whether we can see it or not. Well, I mean, even from a young age and even through adulthood, you know, normally people, it's, it's common to be afraid of the dark, to be apprehensive of the dark. 
but more so, you know, people will tell you, I don't really like being uh, in the dark, but it's okay if I'm with somebody else. I don't like being alone in the dark. And I think that uh, a big part of human nature is that when it is dark and when it's alone and there's all this sensory deprivation, the only thing you're left with is yourself. And you kind of got to turn the light inward whether you want to or not, because there's really nothing else there to take your attention away. And I think some people are afraid to to take that moment of introspection. Right, right, and right. if you're if you're a kid and you don't you know you don't know who you are yet and you're still developing as a person, then that can be a pretty scary thought to to be there with only your own thoughts. Absolutely. There's um you're talking about uh, invisible friends in the book. I talk a there's a chapter about that. You know, sort of invisible friends and and playmates, and sometimes it talks about, you know, the idea that if, um, if children pass away, I've investigated so many um, cases over the years where someone, you know, has lost a child, and um, they say, you know, they call and they say, we don't know what to do because we think the child is still in the house and hasn't moved on, and they think, oh, you know, they're doing something wrong or the child's unhappy the child stuck somehow, and they're very concerned about whether the child should still be there and, and wanting to do something to help the child move on. And without fail, every situation you go into the house, and the, the child's bedroom is completely undisturbed. Mm-hmm. Everything's the way it was when the child was alive. All of their toys are in place, their books, their clothes, and more than one occasion, uh, they're you know, pajamas or clothes are laid out on the bed as if, you know, the child's still there, you know, going to get up in the morning or go to bed at night. You know, all the stuffed animals, everything else. And so it's not surprising that, um, you know, that the, the parents would feel that the child is still there or that the child may possibly still be there. Um, when you think about, as you mentioned, when you're a child, your whole self-identity is, your family, you know, your little home, your little room, you know, and mom and dad. And, you know, it really shouldn't be surprising that children would have a hard time moving on or that parents would have a hard time letting go of that. And so, you know, I think a lot of instances where you find um, the children seem to remain behind after death, it's because that's the, that's the whole world that they know. That's That's the universe to them. And everything they know about themselves is is what their parents tell them and what their parents are and just their things around them. And, you know, sometimes adults end up like that, too. Um, remember that book, The Search for Bridie Murphy, way back in the 70s? Mm-hmm. It was, you know, about a woman that um, supposedly went through hypnotic regression and went back through her previous life um, as a woman growing up in Ireland many years ago. And the book was debunked and, and proven wrong and all of this. But it's interesting. There's a line in the book that I always remember um, that the hypnotherapist asked the woman what she did after she died. And she said, I just stayed in the house. And the idea was that her experience was so limited. She was growing up on a farm. She didn't really know anyone. She didn't really go anywhere. She had such a limited experience of life and of the world that when she died, she just doing what she always did. And that certainly, you know, seems to be the case when children pass away. And like you said, when children are alive, that they have very limited uh, experience of, of what everything means and who they are. And so, yeah, it can be very very terrifying to be uh, by yourself at all, especially alone in the dark. Well, what bothers me about these instances like you're describing where you go into the homes and and the rooms are untouched. And I mean, I don't want to, we could spend a whole night debating back and forth about what we think the essence of ghosts are, but I think that when that happens and when the parents have trouble letting go, um, even if they say that they have, and, you know, it's just that the room is still the same, when you get to that point, it's almost like they're feeding that, they're creating the thought form of whoever that person was. And while it may not necessarily be the child spirit that remains behind, they create it to fill that void that's missing. And I think that that's got to be even harder as an investigator to go in and deal with if that's the case because you're not dealing with a spirit that you can just move on. You're dealing with something that these people created. 
Yeah, it's very interesting. We, I had an experience of that, not when I was young, but when, when I was a teenager when my dad passed away. And it was very interesting because when I was a kid growing up in that house, we had some, some things going on. Mainly, there were footsteps that we heard on the stairs during the night, each night. And that went on for probably 12, probably 12 years, until about around the time my brother and I started high school. And, and then and stopped, and we didn't hear anything else or experience anything um, until this incident happened. It was at the time I was 19. My dad had passed away, and, uh, you know, after the funeral, the weeks that followed, we started hearing things in the house again. We started hearing footsteps on the stairs again, footsteps upstairs when we were downstairs, downstairs when we were upstairs. We heard banging on the doors. We heard... Voices in the basement. We heard the piano playing by itself. All sorts of, of things going on, and and escalated over the weeks. And you know, we became convinced that my dad was still around. To the point where, um, and it was became so disruptive. We actually were Catholic. We called the parish office, and they sent a priest over to bless the house. And uh, which it was an interesting night in and of itself. There's a lot going on that night. But he came over and he, he blessed the house. He blessed each room. And when it was over, it was over. Nothing else ever happened again. That was 1986. My mom still lives there. Not, not one thing has happened ever again. Um, it's interesting because in retrospect now, um, after you know studying so much of this phenomenon and people's experiences after all of these years, it's seems much more likely to me that we somehow created mm-hmm. that activity that was going on in the house after my dad died. We were so, it was so quick. He had an accident, so he was you know, in great health. He was 70-something, but he had an accident. He died very quickly. We weren't expecting it. We missed him very much, and uh, it really seems to me to make sense, much more sense than thinking of his ghost being around that we were sort of creating, filling up that empty space um, with really thoughts of him, very, very believable thoughts of him. And it, and it works. I've, I've known many instances where people have said that, you know, the they've had the smell of someone come into the room, their, their particular perfume or cologne, their favorite tobacco scent, you know, all these different things. And they say, you know, it made me feel like they were still with me, even for that brief point. And I just take that account, I listen to it, I nod my head, and I think, you know what, you might have even imagined that. It might not have actually happened, it might have been all in your head, but if it made you feel better, then I'm going to leave that alone and just say, that's a great encounter. Absolutely. Well, we do see, though, uh, a darker side to children when it comes to the paranormal, because often they're usually targeted by some of the more negative entities, uh, maybe because of their their youth, their innocence, their willingness to believe, uh, they seem to be the ones who have to endure uh, the worst of it. And uh, one particular thing, and I I guess if we're going to talk about negative things, we should start right off the the bat with the demonic realm, because they seem to try to manipulate children and gain their trust. I mean, how, how many times have we looked into you know, demonic cases, read, read accounts online or, or heard the stories from demonologists of it started off as a little kid ghost that was interacting with another kid, and the next thing you know, all hell breaks loose. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the theory seems to be that um, you know, the demons and other negative entities, whatever they may be, are attracted to children because they are open, they are do not have those, you know, sort of spiritual defenses or barriers that adults have that and that really comes from the sense of oneself. And um yeah, it's interesting because, you know, whether it's like you said, um, you know, it's a little little girl I was playing with and then all of a sudden it's this nine foot tall, like dark hooded figure mm-hmm. at the top of the stairs. And um, they do seem to start out innocently and draw children in that way. And we see that in a lot of the, I have a chapter about games that children play um, where, where, you know, things turn bad very quickly. And, you know, one of the main things is the use of the Ouija board, which was, you know, believed to be the starting point for the the case behind the, the exorcist story. 
And, you know, it's an interesting thing. And I have an experience with the Ouija board after my dad died, too. And, um, you know, the, the, uh, I, I didn't want to use it. I was afraid of it. But my friends were using it at a party. And my dad had just died. And they asked if my dad was around. And um, it said yes. And it said, do you have a message for Ursula? And it said, it spelled out, I love you, Annie. And Anne is my real name. It's my first name. And I started going by Ursula when I was, um, when I was about 10 years old. And, um, my dad always called me Annie when I was a little girl. And my friends had no idea about that. I mean, they, I had known them. I never talked about it. I never used it. And, uh, there it was. And then they asked, is anyone else here? And it spelled out, I'm here too, Annabelle. <laughs> wow. And my dad's twin brother, who had died six months before him, always called me Annabelle. So that was enough for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's interesting. And, and um, a lot of things start out that way. And you're just convinced it's someone you know, it's someone that loves you, it's someone that is just playing. And a lot of times... You know, this stuff can go bad very quickly, and parents will find that, um, you know, especially things like that, playing with Ouija boards or, um, like, you know, nowadays all the interest in spell casting and things like that, mm-hmm. um, you know, since all the Harry Potter stuff and all that, that children will start to seem depressed or down. They'll start hanging around by themselves, you know, spending a lot of time in their room, and, you know, whether this is coming from, you know, some sort of negativity or, you know, even demonic entity outside of them that's being drawn to them through the, their activities, or if they're, they're bringing something out from their own psyche or something, you know, through the dark side of themselves, um, it's not stuff to mess around with and definitely stuff that parents should be aware of. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned it coming from their own psyche because we see a lot of new movement in the paranormal, uh, you know, in the last 20, 30 years, that the idea of poltergeist activity is actually centered around an individual, uh, an adolescent child, a pre-adolescent child, uh, actually being the cause of the phenomena and not some sort of spirit. And you write about a great case in the book, uh, in There's Something Under the Bed, and that's the, the case of Tina Resch. Am I pronouncing that right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And and to me, that was fascinating, the way that whole story uh, came about. If you could just share with uh, people exactly what that case, uh, what what started and what it ended up leading into. Sure. It is um, one of the most fascinating cases of poltergeist activity and, and absolutely tragic as well and really kind of follows, you follow Tina the whole, through her whole life, too. It's very tragic and Tina Rush was a, uh, she had been a foster child, and she was adopted by her foster parents uh, when she was a baby. And she had a very difficult time in school. She was always in trouble, um, you know, always teased by all the other kids. Later on, researchers, um, some of them thought that the poltergeist activity surrounding her actually may have started when she was uh, much younger than when it came to light when she was 14. Um, because when they looked back on her childhood, she had had so much trouble in school. She would always be accused of throwing things, mm-hmm. um, you know, moving stuff around. And she was actually ended up leaving school, and she was ended up being homeschooled because she could not get along at school. And uh, so she was home. She was helping to raise the other foster children in the home, which she seemed to enjoy. And uh, then when she was 14 years old, uh, this took place in Columbus, Ohio, by the way. There were all sorts of activities that began where there were, the, it began with malfunctioning of electrical things, appliances, the refrigerator, the microwave, you know, the clock in the kitchen. And uh, some very bizarre incidents started to occur uh, as well, including one incident where eggs inside the refrigerator actually shot through the refrigerator door, closed wow. refrigerator door, and broke on the floor outside. Yeah, really, really wild stuff. Um, the activity escalated. Um, things were happening all over the house, 
you know, furniture moving around, uh, objects moving around, things being thrown around. And the case caught the attention of the Columbus Dispatch, the local paper, and they sent a photojournalist out to cover the story, Fred Shannon, who took a famous photograph of Tina Rush with the uh, telephone shooting across her body from the table next to her. The, the photographs appeared in you know, all the newspapers, and it caught the attention of William Rowell, the great parapsychologist who you know, was a great pioneer in uh, poltergeist research. And he came and actually practically lived with the Russians for many weeks and studied Tina, and uh, not only studied her in the home, but also took her to the laboratory um, and, and, and really studied her brain as well. He found out later on that she had a mild form of Tourette syndrome and that, you know, a lot of her body movements were very jerky. She had a lot of nervous sort of twitching. And, you know, a lot of people wondered, including him, if some of that was responsible for the stuff that was going on in the house or if it was some sort of underlying nervousness or tension in Tina that was causing these bizarre things to happen out, really outside of her body without her interference. The case got very convoluted because Tina was finally photographed creating fraudulent activity, which happens in almost every one of these poltergeist cases. Um, and the theory is that, you know, the phenomena starts out genuinely and then uh, catches the attention of people. And, of course, the child likes the attention, mm-hmm. but this phenomenon doesn't last. I mean, that's one of the hallmarks of it. it, it it's fleeting. And so when it starts to taper off, the child will start to create phenomena to keep it going. Especially especially if you have, like, a background like Tina did, you know, you're going to want to have that attention even more so. Oh, absolutely. And she, you know, continued to have problems. Um, You know, it came to light later that she had a lot of trouble with her uh, foster father. Um, She claimed that she was abused by her brother. Um, You know, there were a lot of problems in the house. One of the interesting things about the phone was that um, she had a boyfriend that she wasn't allowed to have. The only way that she could talk to him was on the phone, and she was forbidden from using the phone. So William Rawl came to believe that she, a lot of her emotion was invested in the phone. And so he believed that that had a lot to do with why this phone would go, you know, flying across the room all the time. Um, and things like that. It happened a lot with the phone. There was a lot of activity centered around the phone. And he really believed that she was really, like, seriously investing herself in the phone and projecting her energy into the phone. And he wrote a book about the case called Unleashed a number of years ago. And he goes into a lot of in-depth analysis of theories about the poltergeist and the, the tie-in with physics. And the, I tie into the idea that inanimate objects can become charged by people's energy that handle them. And that if that person um, comes into contact with that object or even walks by that object, that it's possible for their energy field to disrupt the energy field of that object. Um, so there's a lot of interesting stuff in that book um, from a scientific perspective, the possibilities about the poltergeist. The tragedy about Tina's case, I mean, besides just the tragedy of her childhood as it is, um, is that she grew up, and when she was 16 years old, her parents literally threw her out of the house. Um, I think they moved, and they didn't want her to move with them because she had brought what they believed was, you know, this dishonor on their family because of what had happened. And she had the choice at 16 to go and live in a juvenile detention center or to marry her boyfriend. So she ran away with her boyfriend. She didn't marry him, but she went through a string of other very bad, abusive relationships. And she ended up having a baby. And uh, she was with not not the father, but yet another man mm-hmm. when um, the baby was found dead in her crib. She was two years old. And uh, her name was Amber. And Amber, it was later found out, had been sodomized. And Tina, at the time the baby died, was not even at home. The baby was at home with the boyfriend. 
Tina was at the home of a friend of hers who was helping her to write, ironically, a book about um, what had happened to her when she was younger, about the, the poltergeist phenomenon. So Tina and the boyfriend were taken into custody. The boyfriend got off really scot-free. Tina pled guilty to the murder of the baby, even though she passed the polygraph test with flying colors. It was pretty much obvious that the baby had been sexually abused by the boyfriend. The boyfriend was home with the baby at the time of the death, and Tina was nowhere near the house. She pled guilty to avoid capital punishment, and she's in prison today. Always will be. Life plus 20 years is what she got. Wow. And many of, you know, proponents of Tina believe that she became convinced when she was a teenager that no one would believe anything that she said because of the poltergeist um, mm-hmm. occurrences, because of, you know, the, the, the attacks um, uh, of her as fraudulent, um, claims that she had made it all up, and, um, you know, her parents believed that she had dishonored the family uh, because of this. Um, so, yeah, uh, William Earl and others came to believe, really, that Tina um, was so, you know, emotionally and mentally um you know, cut down by the whole thing that she did not even have the self-esteem to plead innocent to to her daughter's murder. It, it, it's amazing to me too that it's it's if people step back and they look at these poltergeist cases and they look at what happens with the phenomena and what the theories are, uh, there's no bigger cry for help from a child than to have this activity take place. And but everybody becomes so focused on the activity that's happening that they're not looking at the child and why it might be taking place. Yeah, it's interesting. It's so, it, it, it seems to me, I mean, you know, all, all we know about a lot of these cases is, is what we read about them. And it, it's really shocking when you think that if something like that was happening, whether, you know, whether they were creating it or whether it was happening independently of them, um, of, of their knowledge, you know what I mean? Um, that wouldn't the first thing you did would be to do would you know be take your child to a doctor or a counselor, mm-hmm. and it doesn't seem like that is really what anybody does. It's going to be worse now, where everybody wants to be on a ghost show. They want to be the family exactly. that taps comes and helps. So exactly. it's only going to make matters worse. Yeah. Well, why don't we take a quick break? When we come back on the other side, I want to talk to you a little bit about the Chicago Ghost Tours that you do and, and talk to you about some of the events you have coming up. And if anybody wants to call in and share, you can do so at 508-996-0500 or 1-877-996-1420 if you want to call in toll-free. And those numbers are also up on SpookySouthCoast.com. You can find out more about Ursula and get her book, There's Something Under the Bed, at ChicagoHauntings.com. And it's also linked up right on the front page of SpookySouthCoast.com as well. We'll be right back with more. Stay tuned. Spooky South Coast. We are tonight's entertainment. Designed and directed by his red right hand. All right, welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with the silent assassin Matt Costa, science advisor Matt Moniz, broadcasting live both on WBSM and on Fate Radio. And you can go to Fate Radio and get all the archived videos there as well. Uh, the podcast, we're working on the last few of them. Uh, there was a technical issue that I'm working on fixing, but we'll, we will get them up there uh, very quickly. Uh, just a few news and notes here from the Spooky Crew. Um, I guess a little self-plug here. My book, Ghost of the South Coast, comes out uh, the end of this month, beginning of next month. And uh, there's some signings lined up October 13th at Baker Books in Dartmouth. October, uh, thank you, thank you, I, I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> was that just a spur of the moment thing, or you were just waiting for me to start plugging it so you could <laughs> so you could hit that as too? But uh, also, we're going to have um, 
There's going to be one October 30th at the Old Company store uh, in Wareham, and uh, also October 24th at the Taihonet Village Market in Wareham as part of their Haunted Bug Ride. So there's going to be a bunch more coming up. We're working on a few more of them. But the, the big one is Paranite 2010, Wednesday night, October 20th, at the Water Street Cafe in Fall River. And uh, we have, uh, for just $45 a person, you're going to get to go to the, the Haunted Water Street Cafe, which is uh, right across from Battleship Cove, uh, built in 1844. It was originally a print shop there. We're going to have a cocktail hour with a meet and greet where you can meet some paranormal authors, buy some books, get them signed. Uh, we'll have some live entertainment. Then we're going to get a buffet meal. Then Jeff Belanger will discuss legend tripping. Actually, he's going to be the he's going to close the show out. But uh, I'm going to talk about Ghosts of the South Coast. And Robert Merch will be there with some of his Ouija boards, talking about the history of talking boards. And then we're going to have some psychics in place. We're going to do some seances. We're going to do some uh, some individual readings, and uh, also you can get the VIP packages that include night a night stay at the Lizzie Board and Bed and Breakfast. So, just more ghosts than you can handle, and good food too. I mean, we've been to the Water Street Cafe a couple times now. Great stuff there. So, just go to SpookySouthCoast.com and you'll find out more about that. And we'll have more information in the coming weeks. But for now, if you want to get involved, and especially if you want one of these VIP packages, definitely email me Tim at SpookySouthCoast.com. Because those are going to go fast. There's only eight rooms in the house, and two of them are already booked for the night. So you want to get on that really quickly. And then also you can email me if you want to just buy tickets because we get some PayPal uh, issues, but we will have it up there later on. So there you go with that. And, and our guest tonight, Ursula Bielski, the author of There's Something Under the Bed, you also run tours in Chicago as well. Yes, we run the Chicago Hauntings Tours. We have been, this is our eighth year in business. And uh, and they're year round. I mean, we 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 go pretty much every night of the year wow. uh, nowadays. And October coming up with just thousands and thousands and thousands of people um, uh, going on the tours every Halloween season, which lasts now until like Thanksgiving. Um, there's just so much more interest every year. Whenever we think, you know, people have got to be getting tired of this stuff, and they just don't. They just keep coming, but our tours are, um, they, they're pretty much in the city center and they're very historically based. Uh, we do have our black Chicago hauntings ghost bus that we use for most of the year, except for in October when we, um, hire a lot of other buses and we take people to some of the most, you know, famous sites in Chicago, site of the St. Valentine's Day massacre. Um, the site of some of the big disasters, the Eastland disaster, the Iroquois Theater fire, um, and uh, some just very haunted places like Hull House on the west side. And um, make several stops in the course of the evening, talk a lot about the history of the city, a lot of the ghost stories at the different sites. And um, we've been consistently on Haunted America Tours top ten list since we started, so we're very proud Excellent. And one of the things that I know that you've written about on, on your website, ChicagoHauntings.com, and uh, I'm sure that comes up in the tours as well, is H.H. Uh, H. Holmes, who yeah. my co-host Matt Moniz, his uh, mentor, Maurice Jardins, wrote a book about The Holmes. Devil's Alibi, yeah, about Holmes or Henry Mudgett, as is what his real name was. So I think we could do a whole other show just on that and maybe some of the other Chicago ghosts sometime in the future. Absolutely, yeah. We do a, we we do an entire four hour tour just about H.A. homes in Chicago. So definitely a lot of material. Well, we that that sounds like a great show, and our content director Chris Balzano is listening. Uh, he can he can start working on getting that all together. But uh, good luck with with there's something under the bed because I think that uh, you're going to start finding in your inbox every day parents from all over the world asking for your advice now on what to do. <laughs> it's already happening. Yes. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, hopefully, uh, hopefully we can come up with one good solid answer, one good thing that works. But you know, every kid is different. Every paranormal experience is different. So that's true. We'll all figure it out together. Thank you so much, Ursula Bielski, so for much. joining us tonight, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Bye now. All right. Have a good night. Again, that is Ursula Bielski. The book is There's Something Under the Bed. You can go to ChicagoHauntings.com, and you can find out more about how to order it. You can also find it on Amazon and all those other websites where you can buy books as well. So next week, we're going to be back at the regular time. We're going to be on at 10 o'clock, and it looks like we're going to be just about starting our run of being on at regular time for 
for quite a long time, which is good because we're going to have a lot to talk about with our guests, Stan Gordon and Mickey Bradley, talking about Fields of Screams, the sequel to Haunted Baseball. We had them on to talk about that book, and it was one of my favorite interviews being a sports guy and a paranormal guy. Uh, the only downside to this is when we originally booked the show, we thought we'd be in the middle of a Red Sox-Yankees you know, rivalry for the AL East pennant, and it doesn't look like that's going to be happening, but that doesn't mean we won't have a good discussion with the guys anyway. So stay tuned for that as well, and then coming up in October, we're going to have tons of shows for you as well. And, well, not tons, probably four, because there's you know, only so many Saturdays in a month, but we're going to have lots of great stuff going on, so stay tuned for all of that, and you can find out about everything that's going on with the show at SpookySouthCoast.com. Again, right on the front page, as you go onto the website, you'll see the link for Paranite 2010. That will be October 20th. Tickets are just $45 a person. And really, I mean, you're going to get a great meal. You're going to get some great lectures from Jeff and, and, and Robert Murch, and It's going to be just an outstanding night. And for everybody that's looking for something to do uh, paranormal-wise, Ghost-wise, anything that you know will will send a chill down your spine for the Halloween season. This will be perfect for that, and it's on a Wednesday night, so it's not going to interfere with all the other stuff that's going on. So you'll be able to come, hang out, relax, have a good time. It's going to start at like six o'clock, six thirty, seven o'clock. So it'll be after the traffic has already passed. It'll just be a great night. Matt, you're going to be there. I'll be there. Sure. Matt Moniz, you'll be there. I'll do my best. All right, so there There's you go. There's a buffet, of course. Like, you'll going. do your best. <laughs> of course I'll be there. Free food? You're not going to be there? Well, free for you because you're part of the spooky crew. But <laughs> everybody else, $45. You can't go wrong. And when Matt Costa, who's the cheapest guy I know, when I tell him about the plan and how much it's going to be, when he says, wow, $45, that's a great deal, then you know sure. it's a great deal. Because <laughs> I don't know. Uh, he pinches pennies so tight that when he lets go, there's actually a new form of currency smaller than a penny. Yep. So... All right. It's like those pennies that you get at Six Flags when you put it in the machine. And they they have, like, the yep. long stretched out and the little yep. and it looks like it has Tweety Bear on it. <laughs> All right. Well, until next week, for Matt Moniz, for Matt Costa, for Chris Balzano, I'm Tim Weisberg, and we want you all to stay spooktacular.